0: You're listening to First Film First, a podcast where filmmakers describe their experiences of making their first feature film. We'll discuss those experiences in the context of their artistic development and their subsequent career opportunities. Join me as we take a deep dive back in time to see how fledgling filmmakers came to their decisions. Welcome to episode four with Harris Zambalukos, BSC GSC, a cinematographer of such amazing projects. Mister in Between, Enduring Love, Venus, Sleuth, Death Defying Axe, Mamma Mia, The Other Man, Thor, Locke, Jack Ryan, Cinderella, Eye in the Sky, Denial, Murder on the Orient Express, Artemis Fowl and the soon to be released Death on the Nile. Welcome Harris. the conversation oh thanks for having me chris it's lovely to talk to you you're very welcome this is amazing so um so uh, all of those films are incredible in their own right but i'd like us to talk about your first film camera obscura which is quite a rarity in the uk i've seen it a couple of times um it's quite hard to find on amazon but for those listeners here is a brief tagline of the film so set in contemporary la photographer jimmy joins the lapd as part of the forensic team As his life takes a turn for the worse, he descends into madness, rearranging evidence and victims into more beautiful poses and compositions in an attempt to resurrect them.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. No, no, that's a fair assessment. Fair synopsis. Shot in
0: 1999, released in 2000? Correct. So could you just lead us through what it was that you were doing at that point and what sort of projects were you shooting at the time? So the script
1: was written by Hamlet Sarkissian, my classmate at the American Film Institute. We were both studying there, doing our MFAs, and that was his kind of thesis script, which was written under the tutelage of Leslie Stevens, a fantastic screenwriter who was, who was teaching at the AFI. And we managed to get a little bit of funding and some a lot of help and we basically made an independent uh, film and this was it. Um, it kind of was, uh, to some extent, a lot of Hamlet's past was really uh, growing up in the Soviet Union. His father was a dissident and they knew a lot about police brutality over there. So in a way, it is a fictional account of the feelings that he had towards uh in a way, growing up in in a lot of violence, which there was a lot of violence in the Soviet Union at the time. Um, and he kind of transposed those feelings into a, a film noir LA story. And we both were, in a way, as visitors, immigrants to Los Angeles, were in love with downtown Los Angeles, and really wanted to make this almost photographic ode uh, to Los Angeles. And that's how the story came about. And the kind of concept for the film came about
0: had you made short films together while you were at the AFI yes we'd made one short film
1: together basically the way AFI works is uh, at least at the time you made three cycle projects in the first year and then you make a thesis film the second and third year it takes over two years to kind of complete while you're still doing seminars and lectures etc or you write a screenplay. I made a short film called First Daughter, and Hamlet uh, wrote two scripts, one of which was Camera Obscura. Um, Leslie Stevens was a big influence on this because he was one of the initial producers, and we were very, very lucky. His best friend was Conrad Hall. So uh, through Leslie and the project, I met Conrad Hall, and I interned for him before doing Camera Obscura.
0: Wow, what a great extension to film school.
1: Yes, like this was
0: right on graduating.
1: We met up. Um, I'd met him at the school uh, as a student. He, he came every year and showed a film. Uh, but on graduation, we had, oh, I, I'm not sure if it was on graduation or before I graduated. Uh, in those final months before graduation, uh, we met up. Um, he said, let's have breakfast at Clafuti's on Sunset. So I arrived at eight o'clock. And we didn't really finish till about 12. We just chatted and chatted and not so much about film. Um, Connie was a, a Tahitian and a great ocean lover. And we talked about living on an island, really. And uh, and a mutual love of the ocean. And it led to uh, Connie saying, I'm shooting a film called A Civil Action and I don't have a trainee. And I said, can I be your trainee? And he said, yes. So lucky for me. And... He had also, and the purpose of the meeting to a large extent, was he had agreed to be a mentor on the project as well. So Leslie said, I've got this kid who wrote a great script in my class and he's got a cinematographer. And I think that cinematographer, me, uh, is your biggest fan and he'd love to meet you (laughs) and and uh, maybe you could be a mentor to them as I am. So we were lucky to have kind of a couple of people really looking out for us. Faden Michael looked out for us as well. Um, I'd already met Hugh Whitaker in London, and he had helped me out previously after I graduated from Central St. Martins. Um, gave me an internship at Panavision Shepperton, But we were able, with all of this, to kind of call in some fav- favours. We were Panavision's first... What's it called, that particular programme? First Filmmaker programme? OK, yeah, yeah. Um, Deluxe, just through the kindness of Bud Stone... God rest his soul, were fantastic to us, as was Beverly Wood, and so were Kodak. So basically, between Kodak, Panavision, and Deluxe, um, and Mole Richardson, geez, I can't forget Mike Parker at uh, Mole Richardson, we had kind of cameras, lighting, film, and a lab. And then some money that our producer had gotten from a catering company. And off we went basically
0: amazing i mean it does sound like a, a universal story with most of the people that i've spoken to so far that these first films come about because of a great collision of like-minded people that are willing to be supportive and like you say either mentor or to apply equipment or you know get involved in a way that a normal film with normal funding uh, doesn't have access to
1: and it's quite sad for us on on this film that a, a lot of those people phil Radin. Uh, Bud, Connie, Leslie, they're not with us anymore. And they were, I would say, I mean, it's an endless list of, I mean, I'm one of thousands of people they helped. The list goes on and on and on. It's just incredible. Some people in this industry are just, they they really, what they did for so many people, i i I think it's up to us to be similar to them and take that ethic and help and support Um, that's probably the most valued
0: lesson there that uh, uh, no one makes it on their own yeah absolutely yeah I can count like you you know the Hugh Whittakers and the Pat McAnally's and the the people that have helped to steer and push things and the extra level if you don't have that assistance as a young filmmaker it's Mm -hmm. almost impossible to get to day one to get to turning over What I find interesting about Camera Obscura is that those sort of low-budget first films with uh, first-time directors generally steer quite closely to some form of a reality. Mm-hmm. There's a, either a social realism or a sort of magical poetic realism, whereas you guys decided to go for quite a stylized neo-noir. How did you break down the script? How did you come up with the, the way to photograph the film? Well, We
1: tested and spent a lot of time together. We would scour uh, downtown and take pictures. And we were very, very just in love with filmmaking techniques. And we thought that this was a kind of opportunity to explore some in-camera techniques by testing and, and making an interesting, a visually interesting film. What's wonderful with Hamlet is that he was very kind of open to this, not just open, just pushed for it wholeheartedly pushed for it and and things developed from there so you know we we came up with the idea that he dreams in black and white etc and then I kind of did some experimentation I said well why don't we take it a step further what if he dreams in black and white negative (laughs) for example and then it, it kind of those freeze frames mean a lot more and we went to Deluxe And we we talked to Beverly Wood, and she showed us kind of a few examples of of how we could accomplish that. Really simple, really. You just contact print onto an IP. Um, It all came from there. So we'd go do something, and then we'd take it back, and we'd think about it, and we had a lot of time to prep, in a way. Um, Also, there was a stills laboratory in Los Angeles called RGB, and what they did is they would spool off motion picture film onto 35 millimeter stills film and they had a a lab process and they would then make a print of it that would be your slide so that would be the equivalent of going into a projector room and seeing you know what you know say 93 uh, looks like printed onto normal kodak stock Print stock.
0: Okay, so you could literally print a single frame. So you could take an image on a Leica oh, or an icon exactly. or whatever and, yes. and, and have it printed. And
1: then have it printed as a slide, which was absolutely what you would get if you uh, shot the next day on a motion picture camera. And we compiled thousands of these photos. And when we then edited them down to what we thought was kind of our film in a, almost a storyboard fashion. We even had the negative. We took that, those stills negatives, and uh, took them into Deluxe, and our, and and we we analyzed them. We actually thought, well, what would our printer lights be? So we were really methodical, Chris. I mean, this is this is so far be, before anything digital. Um, you and when you're when when you are quite risky with things, we were into underexposure. We wanted to shoot downtown Los Angeles with no lights and do driving shots and. You can be experimental if you are confident you will actually have something the next day, and the only way that you can do that is by testing, and that kind of that's that kind of that kind of practice is almost like a musician practicing and practicing so that they can uh, uh, improvise on stage when they have to.
0: Um, Yeah. And I I guess with the advent of digital cinema, where everybody's grown very accustomed to 800 ASA and the fact that uh, a T2 or a T1.3 lens at nighttime in a cityscape, you can uh, at the very least create an exposure that you can then modify the foreground. Whereas... I guess back in 99, you were working with 5279. Was that the 500T That's, at the time? Uh, 7.9 hadn't come out then. It was 93, and what there was was
1: a, a fantastic stock called 89, which was 800 ASA. It was very expensive, and we used it sparingly, um, but it was pretty much shot on 93 at 200 ASA with with 89 for the night sequences. Yeah, so,
0: I mean, one of the shots that I love in the movie is a, a great homage to... Well, I guess to downtown LA and to films like Blade Runner and THX 1138 is the underpass with the hugely reflective tiled wall, and I guess it's that's the that's where you save the 800 ASA for.
1: Yes, for Third Street Tunnel and also those nighttime driving shots. Ariadne or Maria, as her character is uh, at the bus stop. Yes, that's where we used it. Um, our driving shots at night through downtown LA were. At T2, at 800 ASA, and the only thing I could think of that was dim enough to make the lights work but give some exposure to the face um, was basically a mag light. I just taped one onto the hood of the car and put some diffusion on it, and it kind of balanced out really well. So even those nighttime driving shots were shot on 89 like that.
0: Yeah, with a, with a mag light on an arm, yeah. you know, magnetized to the bonnet. Amazing. Tell us, what cameras did you use? What was the kit? G2 and Primo's plus an Arton. For all our handheld work, I
1: really loved the Arton. And we also got something really interesting out of the Arton, which was an accident. I had, we we placed the Arton on the front of the car facing downtown LA at night. So we were going to do kind of a POV, not from inside the car, but the car's POV driving through downtown LA. And... We thought we got fantastic footage again with the 89. The next day we go to first thing in the morning before we shoot, we we drive to the lab and watch our rushes at 5.30 in the morning. And it's all these kind of weird streaming lines. I mean, just the most bizarre, hypnotic, abstract uh, uh, effect. And it, I mean, Chris, obviously you know every camera, really well but it's it's quite a a a funny system the art on with the magazine and how it places so it had just it had just unclipped a little so the um the film was rolling as we were but it wasn't the registration wasn't happening so um it was just a continuous movement of film through the the camera and all the bright lights and all that stuff gave that streaking effect, and we eventually used it in that final kind of nightmare sequence.
0: But that was a happy accident. Um, wow! Yes, yeah, so that's like the um, the Stargate material that's in the that's cut into the middle of the night, the nightmare sequence. In exactly the, the end of the film. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, so no, yeah, no registration pins and so no static frame, just no. lines and lines and lines. And, and and that would have only happened on the Arton. If we had tried to do that on the G2, it just,
1: you know, that, it, that camera doesn't do that, <laughs> doesn't yeah. make that mistake. It would have jammed if something was wrong. It would have told you it's, uh, it's turned off. The Arton, in a fantastically kind of artistic French way, just decided to shoot its own thing um, that evening and thankfully it was useful.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was it was it was channeling some other had some other agenda um yes. for the for the night. You, you weren't totally in control. I think sometimes we need a little assistance like that. We definitely do. Yeah. Fantastic. So um so the the combination of editorial and these photographic processes did you guys how how planned was that idea with the crash zooms and the whip pans and the flash frames?
1: Hamlet had an idea of those things, but he didn't he didn't know the extent of it all and sometimes, no matter how good an actor is a, a, a kind of traumatic breakdown of that level is hard to just you know i mean Hamlet was very interested in okay well, how, what can I do with the actors, but then what can we do visually so he was just open to all of that he when he before he went to aFI at the Leningrad Film School. He had studied with a editorial master called Peleshian. And Palashian had a very, very different approach to editing. He believed in the montage of distance, that you take uh, two images and you don't put them close together like Eisenstein does. You, you take them as far apart as you can. And then it's what you make of the edit in between that draws the audience to really want to see that final image. So, he had that in mind. And he always talked about Palaszczuk. So it was, we, we shot for it. But we never really knew what we
0: were. And he had done some of that in his short films. But
1: we never knew to what extent until we got our footage.
0: Yeah, I guess, like you say, it's very hard when a character like a Natalie Portman in Black Swan, when a character is undergoing a nervous breakdown or Cinema's ability to fragment time and to jump from one thought to another thought in an instant is something that can be done visually that no actor can really portray. So I guess you were trying to find that balance between performance and storytelling. Yes. And, uh, you know, you take someone like Antonioni and he would usually do it just by the actor.
1: You take someone like Fellini and he'd, he would definitely go off and do a little film mind trip for you. And that was very inspiring to us. And we also realized that we needed more things once we were going that way. So we needed to find an inexpensive way of kind of going back to those crime scenes, which we had very limited time to shoot. So I just devised ways of re-photographing the stills we took for those montage sequences and make it feel like it's through the camera. So literally I got a macro lens and shot through the rangefinder of a Leica, but with the stills
0: of the
1: crime scenes focused through the lens or through the rangefinder.
0: Okay, yeah, to give you that idea of optics being in between you and the image.
1: And also, if if you're on an extremely low-budget film like we were, doing that with the actors on the set and futzing around with macro photography, you just don't have the time. So I kind of figured out that we could do that with the stills afterwards, and it would just be me and three people in a, in a room at Panavision, for example, or at Mole. I think we actually did it at Mole Richardson. And that just opened up the film in a, in a completely, in a much bigger way. And, and they were very rudimentary in-camera VFX, but they allowed us to shoot the drama at the, on, on location and with our actors, and to have some time to do this visual stuff uh,
0: much more cheaply and much quicker and on our own afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Like you say, trying to do that with actors waiting around. Yes. It's, it's a question of which do you sacrifice? Do you sacrifice the performances of the actors and the amount of material that you get to shoot with those guys? Or do you sacrifice the visuals and you found a way to keep hold of both? So what was the, what was the schedule of the film? Been
1: so long, it's over 20 years, Chris. I think, I mean, it was. I know, it's great, isn't it? It's, it can't have been more than you know, 24, 25 days, something like that.
0: Yeah, one of the things I really love about the film is how, at the same time as investigating this sort of the neo noir storyline and plot. There's also the love story going on and the relationship story between Jimmy and is it Maria? Maria. Maria. And there's these beautiful light moments that bring you back to a a sort of LA reality where Maria, she's on the subway with the three clowns that are sort Mm -hmm. of entertaining her and taking her out of her, her mindset. And then there's the moment when Maria is performing in the dance with the globes, um, I'm assuming that was all pre planned in the script, but how did you bring that to life?
1: Again, you, you choose your your kind of where you can spend some money. At the time, the idea of remote LEDs uh, was so new. Um, so basically, I, there was a choreography to this, and I said to Hamlet, what if we just get, you know, we'll never get stage lighting and uh, all that stuff, but what if we just. Spend our money on making this glowing ball and she just does a choreography with something like that and then goes into a a kind of cut-out backlit sun. And that's what we did, Chris. Like this company had battery operated remote control LEDs twenty-two years ago. And they were the first of that kind. And they made this prop for us. And and that's really that ended up being the budget for that sequence, <laughs> the lighting budget for that sequence. I think there was a, a, a back. We drew it up. We had our stage plan. There was a choreographer, um, and um, but we staged it around that. We obviously knew what music we were going to choreograph it to, but we staged it around pretty much this concept. My God, that fantastic clown uh, Mexican clown company. Uh, they were friends of Hamlet's. A lot of the actors were from a, a Los Angeles. Theatre group, Uh, they're called the Actors Gang. So, Vijay, Molly, all those guys, um, Cully, uh, uh, who plays the really amazing, nasty cop. So, they were all part of this theatre group. Kirk, who plays the transvestite, they all had worked together. They were all very used to kind of this physical, theatrical acting as well. So, we tapped into that. We took elements of theatre and that kind of rehearsing and the fact that they all knew each other and we threw them into this in a way location play. Likewise with the clowns. I mean, they're sensational. They make the film for me, but we just peppered them in downtown LA and on the uh, underground and had all, you know, and we wanted to do two scenes, one with Jimmy, one with Maria and the clowns. She sees happiness and he just sees death really from the same, almost the same kind of performance. Again, that was pretty much the first month that Los Angeles had an underground, so uh, we couldn't get permission and certainly couldn't afford it. So I hid an Arton in a in a bag, um, and we bought some tickets and some and took our eighty nine kind of eight hundred Kodak eighty nine stock fifty two eighty nine, and basically we got one take, one take of the clowns and one take of. Uh, Ariadne crying and reacting, and then
0: and then scarpered, scarpered before anyone yeah. <laughs> could notice that you'd snuck in
1: exactly. And, and the sequence with Jimmy and Culture Clash is the name of the Mexican clown group. I mean, sensational, absolutely sensational. So Culture Clash basically set up in downtown LA, and Jimmy was kind of doing what he was doing, taking photographs of them. Everything you see around you are Basically, homeless population and passers-by in downtown LA. That reaction to that with the one homeless person who dances with, I believe, the skeleton, that just happened. That was a homeless person that just happened to pass by, thought it was great,
0: and joined in. It gives the film such a reality that you have a belief in the truth, despite the artifice, despite the breakdown, despite the neo-noir genre that you're tapping to. I think there's a reality to the emotional plot of Jimmy's plight mm-hmm. that is underpinned by these real-life interactions. Yeah. Yeah. And so looking forwards, one of the films that immediately springs to mind is Locke and your ability to create that same visual landscape for a person that's trapped in a car. He's a he's a civil engineer and he's about
1: to lay the foundation for a building a, a massive concrete pool and if he gets it wrong that building will never stand and will crumble so there's a lot of talk about concrete you, you, you have to know or if you don't know about concrete
0: you'll learn a lot about you do, concrete you learn a lot yeah across <laughs> the movie and that's like the ticking clock isn't it that's the thing that he cannot mm-hmm. avoid going to that's the ultimate destination but I think photographically, one of the things that you did was to expand the landscape of the film using some similar techniques, I think, to camera obscura.
1: Absolutely. And it, it's funny. It's like, I think it's Hamlet's favourite film that I've done. I mean, he really loves that film. And I kind of... I, I know that there's a language there that I definitely enjoy using. And I would say that, first off, that film would have never happened without Chris Mangus. Uh, so Chris shot a film for the director, Steve, and writer called Hummingbird. And again, digital cameras had just come out. And Chris did a a test for Steve on a motorway at night using an Alexa and available light. And Steve thought it was fantastic. And literally in two weeks, he wrote a, a, a script based on one person in a car driving at night. So I don't think it's interesting... What's interesting about that is how a, a cinematographer showed a technique to a director and it inspired him to write this amazing script. know, There's a lot of things like that, I think, I believe, that happen that we never hear about as to how films come about. Chris ultimately couldn't, couldn't do the film and I am 100% sure he would have done a much, much better job than I did. But I thought I would take something to the table with it. I loved the script when I read it, and I started thinking, well, how can you do what we were talking about earlier, Chris? How can you be on a face but show what they're seeing? And kind of thought of it almost like he's in a spaceship, like this world around him is always present, and that that really gives you a sense of time passing. And what it does is it just... It's almost like a, a visual refresher all the time. There's always something in the image that's moving and changing. And the problem with uh, most car shoots is, if you frame up for the reflections at night, you're not in the best position to photograph the face and do the portraiture. So I just, I think a key thing in that film that helped me get some some of this a, a, a about, i.e the face and what the face sees was by using um, a two-way mirror as much as I could. So I could frame up for our lead character, our only character, uh, Tom Hardy, and I could place this two-way mirror at an angle that got reflections of the street, out-of-focus reflections. So it's, it's a much more saturated driving image than you would get. And again, it is a cheap, poor man's visual effect. In camera. You could add more reflections afterwards. We certainly could. This was an eight day shoot. I mean, if you thought we had time for Camera Obscura, this was literally eight days. But again, I think the thing for people to take from Locke as a filmmaking exercise is to love the limitations. You know, if it's only one character and one car and you've only got eight days, just fall in love with those limitations and turn them to your advantage. So what we did is we decided to shoot the entire script from beginning to end in one night times three. So that drove the entire production. So we had set up a a loop. We had figured out that if we used our red Epic cameras, which were the smallest digital cameras at the time, we could basically put him on a low loader and have him drive around for 25 minutes and then loop round, change cards. And that that would give us over oh, one night a way of doing the entire script from beginning to end with the conversations over the phone. And for, for listeners, he talks on the phone a lot to various people and it was all done live. So there was a station on the motorway where our actors would phone in their lines And it would happen in real time. We obviously would stop if we felt like, or or Steve would give instructions like, just do that again. But we literally did a, you know, a series of three camera setups with 25 minute takes that completed the entire screenplay with the actors in a room that we're
0: calling in live. And so would you do multiple takes of that three-camera setup or would you do a re-rig and change your frames? Exactly. We'd make a couple of rules.
1: Like every time we we would change cards, we would change an angle ever so slightly or a lens or a setup, but then we would carry on from where we left off in the script. Okay, rather, rather than restarting. No, we never restarted. And in one night, we got the entire screenplay. And then we repeated that exercise three times. So we got three,
0: basically, we got three takes of the whole script. And then for the other days, did you do like a pickup scenario where you'd pick up particular lines or a particular frame that you wanted that that you didn't want to run for, you know, 90 minutes?
1: Well, we did one night of him getting into the car and setting off from the building site. So he's leaving the building site, going home, and then he's got to get back in the morning. But something happens that he has to deal with over the phone. And hence the series of phone calls. So one night was spent at the building site, getting him in the car and away from the building site and on his journey. That makes for f- uh, four nights. Then we did a night in the car off the low loader with me in the back seat or or Simon in the sides passenger seat and me in the back and we'd film uh tom just driving so we were in his hands on the motorway and then we got a a double and we did some drive-bys etc for for a night and inserts of the speedometer the kind of all the gadgetry in the in the car and all the prop work of hands etc um that needed to be done, um, and then I think we did um, a kind of a very rudimentary car to car shoot as well with a double, and that that's it. But really, with Tom, I think I think we had only five nights really, and then three extra nights that we did
0: doubles and inserty stuff and car on the motorway. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. So. About 97% of the film is the three days yes. of performance work that you did.
1: Of which most of was one day. Wow. Because of performance. I think Tom's first day performance was by far the best. His, his kind of gut reaction the first day was the most accurate, and that's what you see. And again, uh, so on top of having to put three cameras in there, plus all this reflective glass, and do it quickly, to do all that kind of uh, uh, performance and be accurate with the words, because Steve wrote a brilliant screenplay. I mean, we had to put auto cue in there. So, so Tom was reading most of those lines. So where do you put them and how do you make it look realistic so that his eyes glance really well? I mean, we really had to... That's what I mean by the limitations. It was like the, the space, if you think a car is small... By the time you do all these things we're talking about, it gets much, much smaller.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> there was room to put Tom in the car. Um, going back to Camera Obscura, can you remember any of the advice that Conrad Hall was giving you at the time? How did that work? Um, I have to say that most of what I learned was just watching
1: him on Civil Action. He visited set a couple of times when we shot and uh, we talked a lot about how to... He was very much into uh, subtlety and atmospherics in in terms of any kind of faint feeling that the victims might be alive. You know, he was uh, he really would err on the more cautious, subtle for that. But in watching him for a whole film and having that amazing opportunity, I think having finished film school, then you spend pretty much six months on a film set with someone like that, and then go off to make your first film. It it just, it's by osmosis in a way. Um, You can't nail it on one day because it wasn't one conversation. It was going in every day. And again, as an intern, I had a lot, I did have camera responsibilities, but my main responsibility was to look after him and watch him. So I, I, did do lighting plots and diagrams, but mainly because by writing things down, um, I think you memorize them better and they soak in, or you not memorize them, but you analyze them. Sorry, that's the better word. You analyze them better. Um, I never looked at my kind of files and files of diagrams ever again, and I don't even know if I have them. I wouldn't know where they are. But the very act of putting pencil to paper while watching someone work makes it a more meditative more thoughtful process you can also start to contemplate
0: what is the reason for the balance
1: exactly and especially with conrad he's a very instinctual he doesn't pre-light he doesn't storyboard Uh, he was a, a very instinctual cinematographer and the gaffer would play a fantastic game with me saying you know he'd be like guess what we're going to do next that was the you know a fantastic crew that were very supportive of me there but It was always an exercise in a way, a mental exercise. And Connie's reasoning was never, was never, ever as simple as a light through a window. I mean, it never, ever was. And you never really knew what was going on in his head. He'd just start riffing, basically, um, and you'd have this scene. You walk in and it's a courtroom and you think it's going to be kind of um, functional lighting. And all of a sudden it's, it's like a church, you know. It's quite uncanny how he did that, and I don't think anyone does it that way.
0: Every time I um, photograph anybody standing near a window when it's raining, <laughs> which happens quite a lot in cinema, I guess that the kind of the pathetic fallacy scenario. But I'm reminded of In Cold Blood when he used a very small lamp, like a pepper, or maybe it was a one K and you see the shadow of a raindrop fall from the corner of his eye despite the fact that the killer is about to be captured and shows no sign of remorse there is a visual representation of remorse at that exact moment and every time i am in that position i think of connie and i feel blessed no he's he was fantastic with that and one of the things he used a lot which uh,
1: and that's definitely something i learnt from him, is how much he used the onset painter and how much he used SFX. They literally followed him around all the time. I mean, he would paint in shadows if he wanted a shadow and he couldn't get it. He would take down uh, a floor by a, you know, that had a carpet by a stop because he'd tell them to spray a teeny bit of water on the carpet. It would take it down a stop. I mean, old school tricks that you just, You'd never, you would never, ever, you'd never learn that in film school. It's just, you know, he always used the same on-set painter. um, And literally, had a van of things just for Connie. And again, this is uh, pre-DIs. You couldn't shade, you know, a bright wall or something you didn't like. You couldn't create a power window or a mat or anything like that. You did everything in camera. And he used SFX in a similar way. So all that fantastic rain was just... It wasn't, he was very much involved with S-effects. How did that rain work on the window? How much wind was used? Where was it placed? He loved peppers, by the way, and he would over bulb them. So he'd, he'd double up the bulb. If it was a 150 pepper. He put a 300 watt bulb in.
0: Wow! So if anyone that's not held a pepper, <laughs> they are like trying to pick up a small sun when you're trying to operate them in the lighting department. So yeah, so a 300 watt in a in a pepper would make it melt the gloves of any <laughs> of any uh, spark or or gaffer that wanted to put their hands on it. Yeah. So one of my favourite. Conrad Hall films is *Searching for Bobby Fischer*, mm. which is just such a beautiful piece of work. And for me, he exemplified magical realism. I feel like Alan Davio's work with Steven Spielberg stands on the shoulders of of Conrad Hall's work. Completely and utterly. And that,
1: and I think he definitely wanted you to, you know, he was what you might call a method cinematographer. He definitely wanted you to feel. What you should be feeling through the images,
0: also method in a way that was unique to every project. Yeah, you know, you, you can't watch *In Cold Blood* and *Tequila Sunrise* and think these are photographed by the same person.
1: He rarely had many script notes in his script. He he always said that uh, he did his best thinking in the car, and he liked driving fast. But he would just think about things uh, as he drove to and from work, and that the car was his place where he would basically just mull things over his head, through his head, and then and then come to set. You know, he obviously knew a script inside out and would just think about things. Rather than put them down on paper, use uh, extensive stills or paintings, etc. And then he definitely would test beforehand. So he would gather his thoughts, do some tests, figure out his exposure. He pretty much lit to a particular uh, foot candle reading an f-stop by eye. So he would just figure that out in testing what looked
0: right to him, and that's how he would go through a film. That's seriously impressive technique. Uh, Locke and Camera Obscura are uh, very particular examples of your work, but you're also known for doing huge movies on you know, 65mm, um, Death on the Nile, and, and Murder on the Orange Express. How did you find that transition from the smaller films like Camera Obscura, Enduring Love, through Sleuth, onto the bigger projects?
1: Well, you know... It's always incremental, um, did it cautiously and step by step. My first studio film was Mamma Mia. I think that was my eighth film, I, I recall. And I guess if you are employed for a film, they've seen your previous work and there's something there that they like. So I, I believe that's something you have to bring to the to the table, a kind of enthusiasm as well. But in all honesty, Chris, I just took every film step by step and try to get the best crew always, you know, you're only as good as your crew. And just if I felt that something was something I hadn't done before and needed to think about it, I just spent more time, more time than I was, you know, employed to spend uh, just to think it through. And and be a
0: bit more prepared yeah and i guess the crews get larger and the yes. equipment gets more but the sentiment is the same that it comes from the same place yeah and i
1: i you know i we've just mentioned how conrad thinks of things and that is a very kind of elite position to be in and a very special place to be in i need to prepare and get references and draw and test way 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 more than that i can't just sit in my car and drive for example so it's always interesting to hear these things and see how everyone does it, but there is a technique that suits you and your method. And I came up from a film school background, so, and an art school background, where you've got to do your first sketch, then you've got to kind of add some colour, then you've got to kind of start uh, mapping out the painting, and it, and there's a process to that. There's a, there's a thought process that you go through. So I definitely follow... A thought process that starts by reading the script and my version of sketching out what it might be, and then checking—most important of all, checking that's what the director wants to do, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean, making sure that the, the
0: collaborative approach is still is still an ongoing conversation yeah. rather than it being you know you you running off with an idea in a particular absolutely.
1: Direction. It's a there's a there's a lot of question asking in my opinion. And that's what helps.
0: So you've worked you know, a great number of times now with, with Kenneth Branagh. Am I right in remembering correctly that Sleuth was your first interaction? Yes, correct. And so how has your relationship evolved over time? Because a lot of the films that you work together on, Kenneth is also acting. Mm-hmm. Um, has your process changed at all? What, what was your process like on Sleuth compared to Death on the Nile, as an example? Um, the process is quite similar. Ken likes to
1: rehearse. He treats everything like a theatrical production, i.e., he'll map out spaces, go through rehearsals, and plan. And he likes to be involved. You know, he wants to know what I'm thinking and what I'm going through and what I have in mind. So I, I just have found a clear way of expressing that over the and a way that he understands and likes. You know, I prepare for every meeting. I warn him of what I'm going to talk about. I think that's also important. You don't want to ambush a director and you don't take things for granted in a professional relationship I believe whether that's with your director or your camera assistant I think there is a professional kind of etiquette that you've got to always keep both above and below and it's it just means that the work gets done better and that you're not taking things for granted and that there's a process you know there's a known process simple example you know but I always email a list of what I want to talk about before a meeting. I don't like just showing up and this, you know, maybe they, they don't want to talk about that. <laughs> and I do this, not just, you know, I do this when I go to see Ken, but I also do this when I go see the production designer or Dino, my assistant. I would like us to discuss this, 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 and this, and this. And these are my basic thoughts, but you just warn
0: people. That's great because it means the collaborative aspect of those conversations is bigger because they can, in, a, yeah. in advance of the meeting, formulate some form of response ahead of time.
1: Yes, and sometimes it's things as simple as that, Chris, that make a working relationship uh, endure and be successful. And it also helps in the most important thing in time management, I believe, which is most of what we do, is in prioritizing your, your tasks. It's not about writing like everything down and you're just magically going to do all of them. You've got to time manage by priority. So if one scene is more important, then that's what you prioritise. But you have to have a common goal of priorities when planning your prep of a film.
0: Because often conversations can steer towards something that is logistically challenging and occupy a great deal of a production's time, but it is actually only a few a few minutes yes. of the film, and actually, you need to dedicate much more time to other things. Um, and I'm sure also because Ken's performing, do you find that he has to compartmentalize some of the conversations?
1: Yes, and the last thing you want to do is ambush a director who's got to think about his lines, his other cast members as well. And you're talking about a scene in four days. That that's what I mean about prioritizing and, and time management. And and i don't like it done to me either by my crew like uh, what's our task ahead are we still working on something and, and because of the bigger a production these things are a big factor you know it's a big ship to steer and if you want to maintain a level of control and calmness you have to work that way and then it becomes a lot more pleasurable and uh, a lot more playful in its outcome because cinematography is really in my opinion only good when it's playful i don't believe in the kind of being tortured and really you know uh, that doesn't work for me i need to be in a place where i know what's going on i've got everything under control i have a palette to work with and then it really becomes a, a kind of A playful exploration of a scene.
0: Yeah I guess that that's the question about time is the question that I'm about to be asked going to act towards the detriment of today's moment you know it's like is me thinking about the set in four days time going to negatively impact you know the next four setups.
1: And you can't let people do that to you basically I mean that's why you have the responsibility in the title. The title comes with the responsibility as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. How to make a plan in advance Mm -hmm. so that there's total clarity on set.
1: Yeah. And allow the experimentation. You get that time for for experimenting because you're efficient in everything. You know, um, you're not going to get that time if you're you're winging it, basically.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. Winging it on set absorbs vital minutes that a director has with certain cast members. That's not a good thing.
1: Agreed for sure.
0: We spoke on the phone the other day about your latest project, Belfast, I think it's correct. correct? Belfast, yes. And this was, uh, when we spoke, it was like a little return to smaller projects or at least yes. the smaller levels of equipment and levels of, of crew.
1: I mean, I did this one with Ken, so that's what he wanted to do. And I absolutely enjoyed it. And it was a breath of fresh air for us to do a small film with all the COVID restrictions and do something so personal. And I'm really, really Proud of the film and really love it, and I can't wait for people to see it. I'll always do hopefully both films I types of films I don't ever go out looking for a studio film or a independent film. I read a script and and see if it if it's something I'd like to participate with also it has been different the last kind of you know for the last ten years at least, Ken has had interesting projects that I've always wanted to be part of. So that doesn't always stay that way. You know, sometimes you can get out of sync. Um, It's been lucky so far that everything's worked out really well and we can work together. But for whatever reasons, you never know how how long that will last. And in a way, that was my... I, I chose to make a film with Ken over other films, and that was a decision I've really enjoyed. And I've really liked the outcome of, but um, you know, nothing's—you can't take anything for granted, Chris. And you can never know what what kind of film will be offered, uh, whether you work with the same person or not. Filmmaking is, in in that respect, is out of a cinematographer's control. You know, we can make choices, but we can certainly not guide our storytelling career because we're not the authors of the stories.
0: Yeah, we can jump on board and yeah. go on adventures. You say yes to a project and you you know, grab onto it and go whichever way the roller coaster is taking you this time. Yeah, yeah. So with a, a mind to Conrad Hall and giving something back to younger generations, if you were to have a conversation 20 years ago with your young self, what advice would you give that person? How would you mentor yourself? Oh, boy. Um I think I think what took me a while to
1: maybe see is that, and I think this is something that I see young people, myself included back then, is being over-obsessed with filmmaking. It becomes an all-consuming thing that can be detrimental to your personal life. And it is it's so rare that you actually achieve what you wanted to achieve and so difficult that it can have a personal impact. I think when I, in a way, stopped uh, obsessing over it, my work got better and I chose better and chose for the right reasons. So it's a hard thing to pinpoint, isn't it, Chris, kind of why we do this. But the question I think we all need to ask is why we're doing this. and kind of the way I always saw this is what service can you give to an audience and to the filmmaking? How can you be useful and, and what's your place? And once you find that, you, I think you end up just being happier and more, I don't know, something happens to the way you do stuff and you just do it better for lack of a better word.
0: Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I mean, I definitely feel like you have found your place. You have found the way that you can service a script and service the visual nuance of a movie. And I thank you for all of those films that you've given us. I also thank you for the support you gave me when I was starting out and, um, you know, rudderless and obsessive. Um, I'm sure we have many similar traits in in our 20s. But I think you're right. I think balancing the obsession with an obsession of life at the same time allows you to be a much stronger conduit to the audience to channel the visuals into an emotional response.
1: You're absolutely right, Chris. And we did have so much fun. I mean, I I couldn't have done half those films without you. Uh, And there's, for those that don't know, Chris worked at Panavision as a camera technician and what was wonderful about that for someone like me is I could go in there and say oh how do you do this and Chris would just like bring something out of a box or hid it in the back of a warehouse um, and bring it to life and you'd also shoot stuff and shoot tests I mean it was those were fun times Chris I think you helped me out more than I helped you my friend
0: no, oh, no. I mean, that was, my, that was my film school. I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't lucky enough to go to, to film school and to study it, you know, firsthand. But I feel like I got a second-hand education from the likes of yourself and Seamus McGarvey and, you know, a huge number of cinematographers that came through the door. But you, in particular, were the one to give me time and to give me conversation and to show me encouragement. So, you know, for that, I am eternally grateful. Oh, bless you, Chris. Thank you for opening up your memory to long forgotten experiences and for bringing us all one step closer to Conrad Hall, who is a master. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Chris. It's been a great chat. Thank you. So a big shout out from Harris for Callum Just and Dan Redrup at Digital Orchard for the immaculate 4K transfer of Camera Obscura that he shared with me before this podcast. So please like or subscribe or any other thing you'd like to do with the podcast. But most importantly, join me next time in episode 105 with cinematographer Ben Fordsman. Thanks again.